Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research podcast. The following episode is taken from our Think and Drink series of talks, which are informal conversations by humanities faculty, researchers, and practitioners on a range of topics. Please subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook for notifications on future events. Welcome everyone to the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research Think and Drink series of virtual talks. Uh, We hope you are all as well and healthy as any of us could possibly be uh, given the state of the world in which we live. Uh, I'm Scott Hinkle. Uh, I am the director of the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research and I am so happy uh, that you're with us tonight. Tonight's talk is titled, What We've Lost, What We've Found three creative writers on responding to environmental change. Our moderator for tonight, as I mentioned earlier, is Dr. Ken Giroux, a member of the Humanities Institute Steering Committee, uh, who I'll turn it over to now, who will introduce our speakers, please. Thank you, Scott. I'll do the introductions in the order in which it's a Hollywood Squares kind of moment, and I'll I'll just do them in the order in which you appear on my screen. It may not be the same on everybody's screen, but Janice, that means you're, well, yep, yep, Janice, you're still first. Now Scott's gone blank. Um, Janice Ray, um, her first book, which by pure chance I happen to have in front of me or with me, is uh, Ecology of a Cracker Childhood. And it tells the tale of her growing up. And the, the writing is structurally written in a way where there's episodes or moments from her growing up that impelled her, inspired her, touched her, juxtaposed with more current um, topic of writing that that has to do with the environment that she still lives in for the most part. And uh, as a result of her growing up and the people she grew up with, her parents in particular, um, she grew up to be an environmentalist. And and I think it's fair to say that the the long leaf pine forests of um, the American South are, should be, if trees could be, uh, would be grateful to Janice for everything she's done um, for them. And next in line is Anne McCutcheon. And this is a book I just happen to have in front of me called River Music that she published on the order of a decade ago. And it studies the decades long changes in the Atchafalaya River Basin in Louisiana from a, uh, a river basin where the Atchafalaya River wound its way through the basin and the People who lived there lived with the rhythms of the river on a seasonal cycles, fishing and hunting and so on. And of course, over the decades, more and more land was um, purchased by individuals or there was government intervention to improve things like making waterways more navigable. And so life changed in ways that weren't always uh, positive. And she, along with her, I'll say collaborator in the book, Earl Robichaux, who captured the sounds of the Atchafalaya before they disappeared. Uh, she's documented that, that decades-long uh, transition um, from maybe 50 years ago until close to the current moment. So I'm just illustrating each of these people who they are by one book in particular. And by sheer chance, again, I happen to have right in front of me a book called The Home Place. Uh, Drew Lanham uh, wrote this, and it's just like... Um, Janice's book is a, is a memoir of his growing up and how that um, uh, impelled him to become who he is as a human being, among other things. There's some wonderful anecdotes in there that I can quite relate to, but also drew him into the environment and ecology and initially and still a big thread with 
with birders, and uh, I can relate to that a lot too. He's currently uh, uh, an ecologist at Clemson University. So um, you say that you said earlier, Drew, that you're an unstructured person, but I know very well as an academic that we're impelled to create our own structure. Um, every, every day we wake up. Okay, what scares me today? What do I have to get done? And we, there, yeah, the, the structure is not imposed from outside, but there's no question there's structure. So all three of these people approaching, in a broad sort of way, a, a similar topic from different perspectives, different experiences. I'll say the environment and changes in the environment. Um, we're going to talk about that, and and they came up with the title: "What We've Lost, What We Found," and um, the, the focus of that lost and found is talking about responding to environmental change. Uh, I'll start by asking if any of the three of you, and there's no thou shalt here, uh, would like to make a brief comment before I start peppering you with difficult questions. I would. Thank you so much, Kenneth and Scott, for, for having me and all of us on this panel, Drew and Ann, our old <laughs> dear friends and colleagues of mine, and I'm really grateful to be here. And I want to send greetings also to everybody who's listening during this time of a pandemic and just how grateful we are to have um, your presence with us tonight. But thanks for having me and us. Well, you're very welcome. I'll just jump right in then. I'd As like to add, add my oh, thanks. Go ahead. Yeah, may I jump in? I'm jumping in. Please. Um, and, and to, to go back to the title, what is lost, what is found, I, I think um, <clears throat> we might all agree and disagree with me if you like, that as writers, what we're always trying to do is answer a question, whether it's by way of an essay or a book or a chapter, um, where we, we are compelled to find out something, answer a question. Um, a book or, or an essay is usually a result of curiosity, right? Something we want to find out. And uh, so perhaps we have that in common. We're always finding something. And perhaps in the finding, we learn what has been lost, possibly. What do you think? Exchanges, right? I mean, this is, um, we're bartering, really, and, and bartering our lives, I think, in some ways. Certainly, this quarantine um, has us you know, in a, in a, in a different place and, and understanding what the barter really costs. So I, you know, I, I like to think of what, of what I'm exchanging for my life at, at this point. And, you know, I, I think we're at the convergence obviously of several different crises. There's the viral crisis, this pandemic, there's the political crisis of, um, of this current moment, the last four years. And then there's the, the, the sin of, of racism and, and that pandemic and, and how it strikes. And so, you know, that convergence of all of that, um, we're with, with each of them, you're bartering one thing for the other. And at some point you got to go to market and figure out what you're going to come away with. And I think that's sort of a daily thing for us. That's a good point. So as an environmentalist looking at this and, and Drew in a bigger way, um, you know, so I've been writing about the natural world for 25 years, and most of what I write about is grief because we've lost so much. So it was interesting to be presented with this topic 
because I don't normally focus on what is found or it drew, as you say, the barter. But I want to just right here in the beginning, in doing a little bit of research about this, I found a poem by Robert Frost called Directive, where he finds this old abandoned farm in this old abandoned town. And behind the farm is a brook and he drinks from that brook. And I've got the, he says, so this is, he says, here are your waters and your watering place. Drink and become whole again beyond confusion. So that's like, that's even more than a barter that he's talking, drink and become whole again beyond confusion, mm -hmm. which seems impossible to me. Biblical. Yeah. Is that biblical? Seems to me. Yeah. Hezekiah 317, I think. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we get into this psychological aspect of, of, you know, like finding your, losing yourself, finding yourself. And mm -hmm. so this, this idea, this psychology idea of finding by losing, um, which is, is less of a barter, it seems, than this new greater place you get to. And all this is so new to me because I'm so deep in mourning. And let me just speak right here to the issue of race. You know, what we find can never replace all that we lost, you know? And I'm so used to focusing on that. Well, you know, I, I think really, Janice, you know, to that point of of being in, in sort of constant mourning mm -hmm. as, as environmentalists, as, as naturalists, and, and, and then trying to balance that with the beauty, which it is in part that, that exchange that, that we make. I mean, we got to recognize what's left in order to understand the cost of what we lost. And I, I, I go back and I think about um, the importance of your book to me Mm -hmm. was was this understanding of of culture and conservation that there was this 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 interplay um that you that you gave up a certain thing to to be who you are but you in being who you are you gain certain things mm -hmm. and um and that's one of the so one of the things i think i'm finding or maybe i'm look i don't know maybe i'm looking for it is sort of this identity on a daily basis, you know, um, and, and who I am in all of this and, and whatever plague there is. And, and speaking of biblical, I keep thinking about the, I th keep thinking about my grandmother's plagues, you know, that she would have me read out of the Bible and she, you know, she'd shake her head now and say, baby, it's, it's, it's come to pass. Um, so, you know, the balancing the morning and the sadness and that loss with what we can still find that's beautiful enough to inspire us is is sort of my my daily thing and i'll i'll be honest about it for a, for a while especially once um, the protests hit the streets and it just seemed like things were going on and on and on it was hard to find beauty even as i looked straight at it and would you say that um, 
maybe it's through his his recordings but what, what what would you say in terms of lost and found that you found or gained or the world found or gained perhaps um, through your journey in Louisiana well I was I was basically following um, a friend Earl Robichaud who's a, a, a musician and an, an Acadian uh, you know 100% Cajun blood um, through this, the Atchafalaya Basin for about four years, um, various trips, as he, with his field recorder, um, uh, took recordings of birds, of wind and weather, um, uh, oral histories of people, um, Cajun families who'd been there for years, Native American, uh, Chitimaca folks. Um, he was, with sound, he was trying to get as much of the old world as he could. Um, he considered, the Chapalaya Basin, his habitat, and of course it was. He grew up there, as did his forebears. So he was he was trying to capture as much as he could before it all went. And uh, I'm sure everyone here is familiar with the um, sea level rise and in coastal Louisiana, that's where we were. Um, so my one of the many lessons I learned in following him around and speaking with him and speaking to the old people who lived there was that they were they were holding on as as much as they could to the old ways the old traditions and some of them had been um, the old ways had been taken into commercial you know use like um, crawfish festivals and, and and the like and uh, tourist attractions but on the other hand there were some very good museums coming up um, that uh, gave people, visitors and local people, their history, which, which was something found for many of them did not know a full history um, of, of that place and of their people. So that was something with, through his work and the work of others, um, this history and, and culture was, you know, was, was brought to light. That's a way of finding something, a, a perhaps um, re resurrecting or bringing to the fore something that's important. Um, so not sure I answered your question, but there's something. Well, yeah, it doesn't actually, back to you, Janice, it doesn't actually replace what's been lost. No. Um, but it's still something that came out of the moment that, um, mm -hmm. that we found. And, 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 you know, Drew described it as bartering, which we usually think of as a, an intellectual exercise, a conscious exercise, but there's also soul or, or psychological bartering where we find something that uh, is worthwhile holding on to that we didn't. Um, it, I think it, we it, have. Sorry, I hope I didn't interrupt. Yeah. I think we have to. I mean, I think that it is in the found part of the equation mm. that hope exists. And, you know, we're, we just really, we are always a future seeking species. And I, I think that is actually one of the things that's so difficult about the pandemic is we can't see the future. And so it's very hard to, to really hold dear this thing, this hope, this thing of hope. So, yeah. And I wonder if the question for, for uh, Janice and Drew, um, I think I came in a little bit late to the, you know, the green room, um, but uh, I'm, I've just finished a book and and, and friends remind me that I always have a few months of um, anxiety because I don't know what I'm going to write next. But I honestly am anxious because <laughs> I don't know what, I don't know what my place is. I don't know 
who needs to hear from me about anything? Um, and that's, that's part of the pandemic situation. Um, I feel, um, on the one hand, a lot of access to other people, and you know, um, here we are. At the other, on the other hand, I feel um, uh, you know, very much uh, alone and, and not sure where I fit in any conversation. Now I'm here, I'm glad. <laughs> but I wonder if you feel that way. What's, what's to investigate next or reflect on next? Well, it's, it's a, you know, it's a morbidly target rich environment, you know, um, I mean, there's, there's, there's so much out there. And I think, you know, as well, if, if we're going to call ourselves nature writers, which I, I think we, we all do, whether we're writing about wildness or, or the, the nature of, of our fellow human beings, this, this really, this pandemic is a nature story, right? Yes. yes. It's, it's it's all about um, a transgression, a great transgression. So, I, for for me, that's that's that is part of of the finding that ultimately, you know, that's that's our story, and and what we have been seeking in this future that we're constantly seeking, as as Janice talks about, as Americans strictly, <clears throat> maybe or maybe as Western societies, sort of this, but Americans. Let me drop back to that this yeah. exceptionalism that yeah. nature does not impact us the same as it does everyone else um, strikes me, you know, and, and so that we can have nature on our own terms as long as we gate it or mm -hmm. call it a national park or um, somehow control it. And, and we're being proven wrong at a very high cost on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that to me, every every story now you know as we talk about you know exponential curves and flattening curves and and all of those things every story has to come back to to how we dealt with nature mm -hmm. because everything is going everything is going through that filter the other plagues are going through that filter now right because it's going to have the final say and the bottom line is connectivity we're all connected, you know, from the, you know, single cell organism to a rocket scientist, we, we are connected. That, the pandemic does underscore that, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, it does. And, and, and it also underscores our absolute willingness to listen to these dominant paradigms that have affected, destroyed the environment for so long. Mm -hmm. And the one that strikes me the most is travel. You know, it's like, so we, we're, you know, I, I have been uh, just gobsmacked by the skies, looking out just day after day after day, and there are no contrails in the skies. And, we, and I, we have these skies back that I remember as a kid. So, you know, I have the, the thought that comes to me is that we are willing to do for a pandemic what we have not been willing to do for the, the future of humanity, for you know, the future of the atmosphere. And that's been just that thought, you know, if you let that thought sit in you a while, that it, it, it just takes a while to deconstruct that and parse it out that for mm. the pandemic, we have been able to do willing to do what mm. we have previously been unwilling to do. I recall, um, a couple of months ago, driving from uh, <clears throat> Wyoming to Colorado, uh, going south, 
And normally when you're, uh, you know, going south on I-25, you see this ring or cloud of um, uh, industrial stuff uh, over Denver. You know, there's a, a terrible pollution problem there. But the pandemic had hit, everybody was staying home, and suddenly Denver had no pollution. It mm. was, and um, I lived down that way for a time, and in the mornings I did not hear the interstate because no one was going to work. So the sound changed, there was a lack of sound, and the air was clean. I'm sure others adjacent to cities saw that uh, as well. Yeah, and, and then it, it struck me, well, okay, how could we keep it this way? Public transportation for one thing, less noise, less pollution. The answers have been there for a long time, but here was something I could look at and say, this is, this is how it could be. But I, you know what, Anne and, and Janice, what are we willing to pay for that? Or when I say we, I mean, it, again, here's a, here's a cost that, um, that many Americans are proving they're unwilling to pay. So, you know, our cost for um, the price on, on wildness, on clean skies, clean air, clean water, clean soil, um, wildlife, I, I heard a report the other day, just how, how many fewer animals are being killed on roads um, because of the, the, the decrease in traffic. So there, there have been things that we have found that are, that are good in yeah. this. Oh yeah, and but uh, you know, and we have said that we wanted them, but we never really asked at what cost, and and so there are some of us who say, well, you know what, I don't want to go back to the old normal. We can't go back to that old normal and the way things were, in in many different aspects, but then there are others that say, well, there's no way the American way of life will be lost because we can no longer pollute as we, we did. We can no longer uh, carelessly travel as we did. We can no longer do all these things. So I, I think one of the things that I'm finding too is that there, as if we, we needed it, but there's this new sort of chasm between what some people are willing to pay and others aren't willing to pay. Yes. And I'm gonna be interested to see how that plays out you know whether we are going to try to people are going to try to sort of boomerang us back to where we were into that normal or we agree and and say you know what okay it's better this way let's see how we can quiet things mm -hmm. so to take it a step just just to take that idea drew a step farther and that is um so what we've lost, of course, is travel and our ability to move about at will uh, for pleasure often. And, but what we've gained is this, is really contemplation. And, and as you say, we've, we've needed a come to Jesus or come to Buddha moment for a long, long time. And the pandemic has given us that. So I think individually, so, you know, we always thought that, that we, we equate it, it we Americans have equated movement with importance, you know, like if you're shooting the podcast of yourself from the car that's taking you from the hotel to the airport, it, you know, it's like that makes you more important. So being stuck, it, people, people in poverty are stuck. Being stuck mm -hmm. is insignificant, uh, is insignificance. 
but um, what we're finding is that being stuck actually gives us this opportunity to examine ourselves and our lives. And, and I think what's coming out of the pandemic individually is also so cool. You know, like some people are getting divorces, some people are getting married, some people, and it, you know, it's, it's, as a society, it's going to be very interesting. And I think as some people, somebody in the, in the chat said, it's going to be, I mean, capitalism is going to want us to get back where we were. Yeah. So hopefully what we're going to find is more individual choices that, you know, that redefine the word stuck. I sure hope you're right, yeah. Janice. I mean, I can see that for myself, but I wonder how many people, um, and they may not be listening, I, I don't know, um, <laughs> just can't wait for things to get back to the way they were. Um, and we, we know and there are enough demonstrations and, and um, you know, a few op-eds out there about getting back to the old ways. What, what's gonna happen then if there are those of us who um, enjoy the quiet, the contemplation, the revisiting of who we are and our role in the world and how things can be different. And then those who are just, you know, <laughs> well, through you, you know. <laughs> well, you know, and it, it's, we've been quiet enough to hear those who haven't been heard before. Yes. And, and, and so that, that quiet, um, that, that contemplation and sort of this intensification of, uh, of noticing, I think, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm normally one of those people who's traveling a lot in May with the birds and, and speaking and, and leading these bird tours, but everything this spring was in the yard. And so I had to be sort of this net um, cast to catch the birds that were coming through my yard from South America, Central America, all these places that birds are drifting from in, in migration. And I, I, don't, I don't call myself a birder any longer, really. I call myself a bird watcher. And, I, and that's how I started because to, to watch individual birds of whether it's the cardinal that's always in your backyard or the rose-breasted grosbeak that showed up. It, it was this very different sort of stillness for me. But, but then that was stacked on top of, so being at home and, and getting sort of into that rhythm of stillness. Mm. And, and, and suddenly you, you have the other unrest and the protest and, and things happening. And so I was trying to parse them apart in my brain and I couldn't, and they all sort of came together. Mm. And so as a, as a writer, then every, every, everything that I've been writing about um, has been about those collisions. Yes. That's so cool. I found that. So Drew, that's cool because there's so many, there's so many great metaphors in that, you know, like the unrest is viral, you know? Yeah, yeah. As was the oppression. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I mean, again, it's, you know, daily you just sort of sit and I've been keeping a file of, uh, of Corona writings and, um, and, and a lot of it is social media posts, but it's interesting to follow it. And then you'll, on Facebook, you'll get the reminders from the previous year of what was going on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And 
And, and that to me, again, is another sort of measure of gain and loss or barter in that, I mean, who could have predicted this? You know, as, as Janice said, we're constantly seeking the future and here we are. And I always wonder, we're constantly seeking the future, not being on the present, being in the present, but what are we going to do when we find the future? Well, here we are and we, and, and we're not handling it well. As a, personally, I think many of us are, but societally, we aren't handling it well. Mm -mm. I wanted to jump in about um, uh, the travel, you know, the um, mobility. Um, n normally, uh, a time or two a year, I'm sure, I know you, you two travel a lot um, as well, but uh, I also write lyrics for musical pieces. And I was to have an opera premiere in New York the first week of June. Nope. Oh. No. Ouch. It didn't happen. Um, this is a small company, uh, not the Metropolitan Opera, but still um, a good, good company. And this, we've been working up to this for some years. And now it's, um, it's definitely on hold. It's not uh, clear whether the company will even survive the, the, the pandemic. And what I found interesting was for first the, the grief over that, the tabling of this project after so many years of work, but also relief that I didn't have to get on a plane and do that thing. <laughs> and I was perfectly happy to sit here. <laughs> so, I mean, two, two things. I mean, I would love the work to be heard at the same time um, I was, okay with just sitting home so uh yeah i don't yeah i don't want to go to new york right now <laughs> here's a, a thought that ties together things all three of you have been saying that uh, janice mentioned that made the point that um one consequence immediately at least right now for the pandemic is because of the pandemic is that the american way of life is somehow lost or at least stalled and as you all have noted that some people are keen to get back to it and others not so much. Um, but the American way of life had, um, I think it's fair to say an abundant disregard for nature in a certain way, individuals notwithstanding. Um, the American way of life was also uh, very clearly racist. Um, and that's been, that's being, being brought to a boil. It's being, it's, we're at a cultural crisis, both for, um, all the things we were just talking about now, travel, um, our, our usual ways of doing business, literally business, um, and how we treat each other, how we treat the world around us. Um, all the, uh, the, some of, there were some of the aspects of, of, of those, that way of life, some of them were positive for in different ways, uh, increased lifespan for most people and so on, but there were prices that were either unacknowledged or not, not, not even seen. Um, that's all on hold now. What might we find? What might we find in the future? What might our new present moment look like if we were to fantasize what it might look like? Mm. So if I'm you're, just, if, Kenneth, if you're speaking, you know, strictly in terms of ecology, then it's, you know, that would look like what a lot of people have been working toward for a long time, which is restoration. You know, it's like, who wants to go back to where we were? We want to go back to, you know, some point much farther back in, in ecological, geological history, I'll say. 
So that's my answer, restoration. I think it, 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 looks, it looks more fully involved um, with, 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 other, with other people who haven't been involved. Mm -hmm. You know, we, um, <laughs> I, I think it, it became obvious to some people after the event in Central Park that there were um, black people bird watching. <laughs> and, and so, and, and so, but there, we are out there. And we're we're out there not just bird watching but hiking and um, there are brown people and red people and yellow people and all sorts of people doing all sorts of things in nature but in very different ways and many people sustaining themselves in nature hand to mouth kinds of sustenance so I I think that's one of the things that we are going to find is that that we are finding nature in our own way and this opens this opens a lot of people's eyes, hopefully, it will open a lot of eyes to that, that there are others out there, different others in nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Also, so Drew, to tag on that a little bit, uh, you know, as a feminist, I, I, I think I'll respond as a feminist, um, sort of hesitatingly, but, um, the stories of nature writing that women have told as opposed to men have have mm. been very different you know many male narratives are the hero's journey of going far away to the arctic or and a, a lot of women's tales have been more you know cyclical in nature the heroine's journey being more put and noticing the cycles and so I'm just wondering if maybe more of us will be telling the heroine's journey, you know, the journey from our own place. You know, Janice, can I respond to that? Yeah. I, I you know what, I think, I've been thinking hard about this because I, um, so most of my, most of my mentors have been women. Mm-hmm. You know, you and and Rachel Carson and and my one of my great advisors, Dr. Patty Gawadi, who's at um, the University of Georgia and preeminent ecofeminist. I you know um, so and and a lot of that research was sort of this cyclical um, and understanding the cycles and and standing and watching sorts of things and so that intensification of the of the pandemic and, and, and us noticing and not having to rush to see things or tell the stories of far off places, mm -hmm. I, th I think has been, you know, for me, that's again, that's another sort of found thing, but I, I made the decision before the pandemic, the pandemic certainly began mm -hmm. to speed it up, but that I wanted, I got off of every national conservation board that I was on mm -hmm. because I wanted to be able to pay attention to home home being the region, the South, especially. Yeah. And I, I, I wanted I wanted to be here for migration. <laughs> you know, I wanted to see the birds that were coming through, you know, the Southern Appalachians. I wanted to, to, to be able to sit on my deer stand in the fall um, here. So a lot of what I, I think the stories of, how should I put this? everybody except the majority male 
um, really have 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 been different in in some ways. I, but because the the stories that are always told and who we're compared to are are often white male writers. I you know Aldo Leopold is one of my 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 writing heroes. Um, but I look at his stories and and that story of 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 telling the cycles of home. I mean, that hits to me. That's why ecology hit to me. And that's why, you know, everything to me always comes, I try to leverage everything back home to tell stories of my, my home. You know, um, my, my model for, um, for the Chafalaya book was, was John McPhee. Um, so I'm a woman taking John McPhee as, as a, a, you know, sort of, sort of a god. I mean, one of his, his deals with so many of his books was to follow an expert around and, uh, and, and, and uh, write about that expert, you know, personally, who that person was, and then through that expert, explore a certain part of the world. And um, I love his work so much. And, and that was the model I took for going around a river basin with Earl Robichaux, but the sex is, you know, I, I'm the woman with, with the, um, the rubber boots and, and, and having the adventure, following the adventurer. And, and I loved it. I really, really loved it. Even though some park rangers told me not to go into a certain place because three women were raped there last week and I might not feel comfortable, especially after they told me that I didn't. Um, but in the process of, of uh, following Earl around and doing that adventure, um, my own personal um, story of, of where I grew up, of home in Florida, kept, it kept, popping into the narrative. It's there. It's in, it's in the book. I, I, you know, once in a while I reference that Florida town or, or that beach. And, and uh, when I got done with the book, I thought, what was happening? <laughs> like another book wanted to be written. Uh, and it just, it, it kept popping in. And, and that, so I did follow that with a memoir of the place I grew up in and the environment and so forth. So it was as if um, I had to take that model, take that journey, reverse the sex or, you know, be the woman instead of the man following wherever on an adventure to get to my own story, um, which was a, a great pleasure to have, to have that come about. Um, I resist writing about myself sometimes and boy, I, I didn't resist with that book, so. It's so great to hear both of you speak about this. Like, Drew, you're exactly right. You wrote about home place, you know? You wrote the woman's story, really. And Anne, oddly enough, I mean, <laughs> to, hear that you, to hear that that you were shadowing McPhee with, with that, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of antipathy toward McPhee. I just remember in A, in a Forager, he followed Yule Gibbons. He invited Yule Gibbons down this river, the Susquehanna. Remember that? He's like seven days out eating wild food with Yule Gibbons. And I've always been so mad about that because I just think as a woman, how in the world could I ever invite this single man out in the woods for seven days? <laughs> so I'm glad, I'm glad you did it. Yeah, I did it. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Well, and part of the strength of that journey that you took with river music and was in fact stopping and noticing and you're uh, focusing on the cycles, the patterns. Yes. Um, so I mean that even that the way you described it is sounded a little different, but that, that, that whole book still has to do just like Drew's 
writing in, in genesis has to do with noticing and, and being present so uh, i think all three of you have that uh, bring that to your writing whether it's deeply personal moments that stuck with you drew you you told the story about the bb gun and your first uh, mm. experience actually hunting with a bb gun could have been word for word right mm. and i <laughs> I can still remember it 50 years later and going, oh man, I do not feel good about what I just did. Yeah. Right? A moment, a, a typical moment with a kid growing up, it's got to do with the environment. You think you're doing quote unquote, the guy thing, or I suppose as 10 year olds, we might not have used the phrase, the manly thing, going out hunting with our BB gun and man, it's not all as clean and clear as you like it to be. Yeah. I, you know, it's, Ken, it's remining the, the data that we know best and as a as a scientist i don't care how much how many repeated measures you take i don't care how many times you census a spot i don't care how careful you are there's no data you know like yourself and uh, and and that's one of the found things i think that both ann and, and janice have 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 spoken to and I, certainly many of those out there who are who are chiming in on the chat yeah. is that you you this this situation has caused us to dig more deeply into who we are mm -hmm. and so that data set that we thought we knew yeah. um we're we're re-examining it and and we're reanalyzing it and and so we like some of what is coming out in the analysis some of it's going to require further work right mm -hmm. um but that's that's this sort of thing and i i think one of the things that we're losing that's good um i like to call call this um the second lost cause and and that that first lost cause that persisted for so long that's that's being torn down the lost cause that we are are, are in the process hopefully of not reconstructing in some sort of way is the one of rampant hyper capitalism and um that 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 really has has built these worlds of haves and have nots that are creating a lot of the angst that we're seeing in other ways so yeah drew it's that that's led to devaluation of entire groups and races and nationalities of people and yeah. and also devaluation of culture yeah and nature Earlier, when I uh, was speaking of not knowing what to write, being between projects, um, and we, I'm, I'm sure you know what that is like, uh, what, or maybe you always have the, the next thing. Anyway, I don't. Um, <laughs> was the was the uh, the I, a couple of things. One is that for me, the thing always comes to me, whatever it is. It I um, if I if I seek that book, it it's not there. It, the subject comes. Uh, or, or whatever, and and the, and the other thing is that um, I think I've always been motivated, with very few exceptions, um, as a writer to be of service, in some way, to to put something out there that serves um, serves readers, serves others, serves a, a cause, if you will, um, uh, so that. Um, it is just not me, 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 which was, I had a problem with the memoir, but I got over that because I believe it was a service. <laughs> but that, so, so when I talk about what to do next, um, I'm asking myself, what, uh, how can I best use my uh, abilities yeah. now? 
you know, how would I best serve? So are, are we pro are we protesting in any way? Is is our writing? Are, is are we crafting protest in any way? Hmm. Good question. We well, Drew, I mean, changing from uh, data analysis and getting rid of repeated measures analyses and nonlinear hierarchy and Bayesian analyses um, in favor of personal journey. You're talking to a statistician, and I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> totally with you on, the, on <laughs> the importance of losing that to some degree and, and finding something else. So, cheers. <laughs> cheers. Yeah. 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 You've mentioned this twice, and so this must be really weighing on you, you know, this idea of what to do next. Mm. I, I've been in that position sometimes. When I'm teaching classes, I'll have my student, my, my major professor was Bill Kittredge out in Montana. Yeah. And he said, um, he's, it's, it's about obsessions. I'll remember his quote in a minute, but, um, Writing well is a matter of figuring out what obsesses you. Absolutely. You may, you may want to play around with that a little, just in your journal, just just start making lists. I mean, you know, Buner, the, the, the man you and I have been talking about, yep. Yep. Buner talks about this, making lists of what you love. I and just made that list, Janice. You I did. just <laughs> made that list. Because <laughs> I'm rereading the book because you had read it. Yeah. yeah. Well, there may be something on that list then that is begging for your story and its story to be told. I, I believe that. The Thank other you. is laying down on the ground with your head to the north and saying, I am at your service, Earth. Do as me, do with me what you will. <laughs> Maybe a lot of praying will bring it. I've been doing that and I expect an answer. You know, you <laughs> know. I had I have a good friend of um, we have a good friend John Lane who yeah. he, he he took some some of my writing and and we um, and we we exchange and and he went through a piece of the writing and did a word search right uh -huh. for a certain word and my obsessions were obvious ah. and 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 just in in sort of in in ways that I that I had not picked up and so having um, other eyes on your work is, that we know is important, but mm -hmm. then those, it, it tells me that, that when I, and I, and I crafted an essay a while back that, um, that's similar to, and it was inspired really by Terry Tempest Williams, why I write essay. Mm -hmm. And I think all writers need to do that. Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of a, a mission statement, but I, I revisit that and most of what I write flows back through a certain funnel or filter. And as much as, I don't know, I try to get out of it, you know, and I don't feel stuck in it. I feel like it's, it's what I'm supposed to do. It feels like mission work, sort of. So, you know, laying, to the, laying my head to the north and, and, and do with me as you, you will, at this at this point, I feel like any any writing has and to serve that that mission, which right. I think ultimately I hope is is serving some other people um, in some kind of in some kind of way, you know, some touch point somewhere. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, 
the the um the book I just finished took six years, and I think I'm partly exhausted. Um, mm. Mm. But I understand. Yeah, we all need so. to recharge once in a while. Did you hear that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Was that Siri? <laughs> ask ask Siri what she lost or gained. <laughs> what should I write about next, Siri? <laughs> you guys didn't help me at all. Here's the answer right here. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're only allowed three panelists in one discussion, so Siri has to take it back. <laughs> that <was> funny. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's perfect. Okay. <laughs> wow. Well. <laughs> A question that came from the audience um, with the uh, changes that have hit all of us, all of you, with the, the pandemic, and has your sense of time changed? And how do you think that is or might affect your writing? One of you want to go? My sense of time has changed dramatically, and I would suspect that everybody's has, just from the lack of a schedule. And it doesn't really matter when I get up and when I go to bed. It's Things seem much more amorphous now. Yeah. Um, the thing that has affected my writing more is not that sense of, of timelessness it's the it's not knowing what's going to happen and and also you know just because we're being really honest on this panel i'm oh i'm a nature writer who's aging i'm 58 and and so there's this other way that my work is changing where i'm trying to find what my voice is in the world as an older nature writer and um, where, you know, the, the things that I took for granted as a younger writer aren't, and, and as a time when the publishing world was different, aren't things that I can take for granted now. And so that really is the bigger sort of time warp I'm in, mm. which is how do I respond to the new realities of the publishing world and, and, um, those realities, once we come out of this pandemic, when we do, are going to be even more changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm uh, with you. Uh, um, uh, I'm older. <laughs> and there's, there's a part of me that is now saying, okay, with the time I have left, and maybe I have 30 years, and maybe I have three, um, what is most important for me to do? So there's a certain pressure. Um, uh, that I put on myself, I suppose, to uh, you know, to to do to do right, <laughs> do the right thing. Um, that's it's simple. Uh, day to day, um, I'm used to working uh, alone uh, or with one person close by, and so that that hasn't changed. But but the still the lack of um, a schedule like. This day, I must drive seven miles to Whole Foods or whatever it is. I mean, that's all gone. It's all gone. It's um, those sorts of tasks are uh, falling away. Whenever they get done, they get done. It doesn't matter. Yeah. 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 I same guys. I I, I think for me, it's been. Um, you know, there there are some days that seem sort of infinitely long and. You know, I, I, I wonder, 
you know, as the days get shorter and we sort of drift into this darkness and we don't have the, the same choices of being out and escaping, mm -hmm. even into our, our backyards, you know, what it's going to be like. But I have, I, I think I've paid closer attention maybe to my own rhythms, some of the internal rhythms that had, had been taken over by, you know, flight schedules and, <clears throat> and, and faculty meetings. So it, it's, but it's, it's not been an easy transition. You know, I think it's almost like being on, you know, all of that was maybe the sugar that that kept me going. And now on this sort of sugar-free diet, I'm having to understand my own rhythm. Yes. And, and, and my own sort of time schedule. So, you know, I, I, still, I still get up with the first wren or cardinal in the morning. Um, I, I go to bed um, earlier at night, you know, publishers they still want debt they still want things on time mm -hmm. um but but i think everyone is a little more understanding of the amorphous nature of it. i think you're right i agree so i wonder when it will stop being so amorphous are we going to be a you know gradually well we can't say right but um will we willingly go back to a more structured um uh, existence? Do we have to when, what, we get a vaccine or something? Um, or, or will we take with us into the next life uh, some of the things we found about ourselves? Uh, one, will. <laughs> speculation, but I think before the uh, industrial age hit us, so back if we back up to the 1700s and, and beyond, life was more cyclical or daily patterns were not as tied to the clock so to speak in schedules um, so we have in fact for a long um, a, lo a large part of our existence on, on the on this planet our, our cycles were driven by how much light and dark there was every day and what the temperatures were like and then the industrial age changed all that we lost something perhaps we gained something um, and maybe now we've got the chance to lose some of that and, and gain some of what we have had for what in fact was the vast majority of our, of our, of our history as a species. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. I, I, I wanted to um, say the closest I've come to this kind of situation uh, we're in was the, the first time I went to an artist colony. Uh, and, and I had a month, and perhaps uh, Janice and Drew, you've had this experience too, where all you had to do maybe was show up to dinner, maybe. And, and you didn't really have to show up to dinner, um, but you had the whole day to yourself and, and the whole evening. And I found that um, I, with a month of that, I found my cycles, my, I, I found what worked for me and, and it was different. You know, for some a week or so, I'd go to bed at 11 o'clock, like I used to do. And then it started rolling into something at later nights, um, later mornings. And finally, I was going to bed at, at eight and getting up at five. Um, mm. and, and something like that seemed to be um, the most natural. But it took a month of that, ex you know, that freedom, if you will, freedom of time to discover what was best for me. What do you say? Anyone yeah. else? Yeah, you know what that <clears throat> that experience um, of uh, it's almost this loss of pretense. 
Mm. You know, and and so I've I've, I've discovered a, a much smaller wardrobe. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 not in in a state of mind of 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 having any wondering about what people will think about me if I show up at the meeting in shorts. <laughs> so, so that, that, the, the, but that cycle um, and being comfortable uh-huh. and just being comfortable in our, in your skin, where you are, right. You know, it's, it's, and so, and just as it took a while to get to this point of going to bed at eight and getting up at five, mm-hmm you know, for so long, we've been told how we should be, mm-hmm. that how we are was foreign. And yeah. so now we're understanding yeah. maybe who, who we are in ways. And I don't, I'm, you know, I'm, no, I'm not going to travel as much like the opera. I'm sorry that you missed that. Mm-hmm. But um, I will tell you that in some ways, the pandemic probably saved my life because I had gone back into this horrendous travel schedule. And um, when things started to fall away, mm-hmm. I realized. I said, "Wait a minute was that was I really going to be in those many places in that short a period of time?" Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, crazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Drew and Anne. Recently, I heard a quote <clears throat> by an herbalist um, named Jesse Wolf Harden, and he said, "Isn't this beautiful?" He said. I too, like the land, have lost parts of myself. Isn't that beautiful? Mm-hmm. I too, mm-hmm. like the land, have lost parts mm-hmm. of myself. Who is that, Janice? His name is Jesse Wolf Harden, uh, an herbalist. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what you're both saying in some ways, that we, we recognize that we, like the land, have lost parts of ourselves and the pandemic has given us that ch- a chance to to almost become wild again, you know, this sort of rewilding of ourselves. Mm-hmm. The mm. thing that our mothers didn't want to have happen, you know, they they <laughs> they wanted us to get the college degree, become a lawyer, and have a savings account, you know. But yeah. I think it's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a good good thing. Yeah, I think, well, I, you know, that's one of the things I think that that'll change and, and, and it's changing that whole definition of wild, which was really, well, let's be honest, it's, it's sort of um, a, a patriarchal um, white concept of what wildness is mm-hmm. and that, you know, it, it's, it's those things for me, it's those things beyond my control. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that, that rewilding that you find a few steps from your back door is a critical thing. And my, I hope that it, it leads again to this sort of increased awareness for folks. We know that there are more people that were noticing birds, at least early on in the, in the pandemic, you know, stores could not keep bird seed. Um, you know, yeah. people were ordering it like crazy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, just that appreciation. I mean, at the base of of appreciation is foods and where your food comes from. Yes, yes. <laughs> Remember how many people started making bread all of a sudden? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh God, the sourdough tidal wave. 
I know, I know. <laughs> there's a beauty to it as well. It is, oh, it is, yeah. it is. Yeah. Oh, I'm not going to turn it down. <laughs> <laughs> so an audience member just asked about anxiety. That is, uh, it's probably a, a precondition or it's a necessary element in any kind of a change moment, right? Change, whether it's positive or negative, um, there's a bit of anxiousness associated with it. But uh, an audience member just typed a question. I'll let you three take a quick look at it. Um, acknowledging the fact that there's there's anxiety associated with this moment. How do you, how do you, grief, you spoke to that, Janice, already, but how do you deal with anxiety over what you're losing and gaining uh, when writing, um, particularly about difficult subjects? Yeah, wow. If anybody else can take that, do. So anxiety. I, I, sorry, go ahead. Let me, and I ha, I've noticed, I've noticed this in myself and I've never been an anxious person at all. Um, I, I hate to confess everything, but recently, well, first of all, I started with nerving, nerving teas. A friend of mine had advertised that she would mix peas for people. And, and so she sent me this mix, which has rose petals and lavender and chamomile and, and other things in it. It's a wonderful tea. And when I began to drink it, I realized like it, the, the plants were giving me, like something happened, like I went to sleep and I'm still drinking that tea and it is helping. But I also about two weeks ago ordered CBD oil for the first time mm -hmm. and that's also helping. So I'm acknowledging anxiety. I mean, we all had anxiety. <laughs> about the climate, about, I mean, about, oh my God, everything, but it has ramped up, hasn't it? I guess. Yeah. I, I, um, what's the question about anxiety tied to writing, the writing pro that's the way I understood it. Oh, but, yeah, so we're, we're, we're talking in general terms about things being lost and things being found, grief over things that are lost and perhaps yeah. joy over new things found. But in the midst of this transition and the pandemic and the, the, the protests right now where Black Lives Matter and so on, the, these things that are being brought to a head, so to speak, yeah. increase anxiety. And, and the question was along the lines of how do you process that um, and, and, and into, your, into your daily flow, I'll say, as, as writers. Mm. Can I say one more thing? Yeah. Anne, yeah. I've interrupted you again. Go ahead. <laughs> then I'll interrupt you. <laughs> And then I'll, I'll, it'll quit, be quick. No, I've done a lot of think. I've done a lot of work on the consciousness. I believe, and I, this pandemic has allowed me to process a lot of ideas. Like between effort and effortlessness is one of them. You know, like how much effort do you put out, and how much do you expect things to be effortless? So this idea of, of anxiety, I do feel like I've been working out. Uh, consciously and subconsciously. Mm -hmm. I could talk a lot more about this, but I'm gonna hush it and then let you go. And then, and, and Drew, I'd love to hear what you say. I, I was uh, taking the, the question a little differently in a different direction. I, um, I don't think I'm overly anxious. I'm, I'm pretty level, maybe I'm dead, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I, I do um, invite anxiety uh, when, when there's something to write to be written that I know 
I'm to do it, I want to do it, then anxiety surfaces, but it's a good kind. It's like, um, you know, you see a great big wave coming at you at the beach and you know you want to dive into that wave and you're going to get the ride of your life. And so I'm for it. So I know I'm going to feel, you know, jittery and I'm going to have, um, be, be um, writing all kinds of crap on slips of paper and um, assembling 40 books that I don't need, but it's all, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's all the, the, um, the process of, uh, it's a certain anxiety that um, prepares me to dive into that wave. Um, so, so that's where, that's where I'm coming from with the anxiety thing, but the day-to-day -day, um, anxiety from everything that we're experiencing right now. Um, I read in the newspapers, I see, I'm just as conscious of it, but I'm also conscious um, that it is changing and it will change and there's nothing I can do to stop certain things. Um, but it is my job to pay attention, to mm. pay attention and, mm. and to act as I can. So um, there, Drew, mm. you can have it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, for, for me, it is, again, sort of this, this compounded interest and not in, in a fiduciary sense, it's a compounded interest in what's going on and noticing in um, birds and, and, and watching them with this different intensity. It's a, it's a compounded interest in building things part of the way that I work out my angst is to put things together. Sometimes I, I've, I've over-engineered all sorts of things um, because it's important for me to see something come together um, in, in some sort of, in some sort of way. Um, maybe it's, it's my personal fight against what I consider sort of an entropic time, mm. but, but then um to face, as you say, and to dive into that wave. Mm. I, you know, when I teach writing, I always teach about writing to tension and having people understand what their, the, the tension is yes. in the story or in the sentence or, and, and so I write to tension and I, and I, and I want that to be clear to people um, that I am worried about this or that I am fearful of mm. this Mm -hmm. of, of this thing, or that maybe I'm, 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 I'm happily angst ridden about what's going to happen with this bird next. Yeah. So, you know, all of those things for me, I, I have ways that, that I've tried to deal with the day to day routine of angst, because it is, it is sort of this day to day that, that can wear and it can be exhausting. I've found myself um, on some days when I've gotten caught up, just totally exhausted mm -hmm. um, as, as if I had been building. And then that next day, I have to go out and physically exhaust myself. Yep. Uh, and, and, and part of that is just being a farm, a farm boy. Part of that is, 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 is who I am in, in that rhythm and that I have to have my hands on something. My grandmother used to say, you know, um, idle hands or the devil's workshop, so to speak. So I try to have my hands on something, doing something, and that helps to relieve. But I write, I dived into that wave, Ann. I yep. write to that angst. It is a measure of its importance. You know, mm. the, 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 I, I think that anxiety, <laughs> angst, whatever, is, is a measure of its importance, not to just you, but you, you know it's important to, to others. Yeah. And um, it's, um, 
I, I think it's, I, I love it. <laughs> I, I know that I'm <laughs> onto something when I feel that way and I don't, and I, I welcome it. It's okay. It's all right. I don't think though that we can deny the, the angst of the moment, you know, yeah. and, and today, the, the, the report came out yesterday that we are, our intensive care beds in Georgia are 82% full. Um, yesterday, a 14-year-old boy in Georgia died of COVID. I mean, this is an anxiety that I, I keep returning to the anxiety of the moment instead of the anxiety of the page because I, I'm able still to lose myself in the work. But the minute I'm up again, I want to hear the latest news on, on what's happening. I think we are in really, really anxious times. I agree. You know, yeah. I, I, I look, I, I'm like you, I, I lift up my head and I look at the news and I pay attention especially um, to places I've lived for long periods, um, in Texas and Florida, which are just, you know, hot spots. And that... I, I fear for my friends. I fear for, for example, um, those who teach, who will go back into the classroom uh, in the fall or not, um, who will, you know, engage with students one on one. Um, no, I'm, I fear for them all. You know, I, it's one. Some of the, I, you know, I think about as a black man. I, I you know, that plague that has been ongoing for 401 years um, is, I mean, that's sort of, unfortunately, it's the angst that we, we live with. Yeah. And, um, and, and so that was part of what I was talking about when I said, I, I write to that. And, and I'll, I'll be honest, for a long time, it, well, at least in the beginning of my career, I sort of tried to step away from that. For some reason, I, I think I wanted—I don't know—but um, but now it's a it's an angst that, that I that I write to. I would not ever change who I am. I want to change how I am treated and how I am perceived, and um, and to be able to breathe. And so, in that sense, that angst—you know—that that sort of constant exhaustive angst of not only seeing the number of critical care beds that are taken up or that the virus spreads in a different way or that somebody has tweeted some inane thing, but that, 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 that somebody else was found hanging in a tree or, 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 or lynched in the street with a, a, a knee on their neck. So it, it's, um, and the only way that I have to deal with that, um, the only way that I have to deal with it isn't isn't in the street because I it isn't in the streets. The only way that I feel like I can deal with it is to put it out there for others to see. Yes. You know, um, and that's where the craft comes in to it. Thank you, thank you so much for for saying that. And and I realize I only spoke to COVID, but oh. there was there's so much anxiety. My anxiety now. It's not really about the unrest, you know, the civil unrest. My anxiety was, was you know, when we went through, when, when officers and non-officers just kept going, getting away scot-free with mm. these heinous crimes toward people of color, black and brown people. I was much more anxious then, just how in the world can we 
let this keep going on. So in some ways, you know, the past four months have been really a relief and just like, oh my God, let's, we're, we're getting somewhere. Mm. Um, well, angst can be an alarm, right? Yeah. Yes. And I, and, and I think that this is a needed wake up alarm. And, and I, I think from the sense of angst being some sort of pain or discomfort, that it's a necessary pain or discomfort. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're just anxious, when you're caught by anxiety, time stops and it seems like everything takes forever. Um, I promised you three at the outset that we would be done in an hour and 45 and we're racing past that. So the corollary, or I guess the, uh, the, uh, the uh, antonym to that is that when, when you're having, time flies when you're having a good time. Yes. Um, this yes. has been a most wonderful uh, hour and a quarter uh, sharing this conversation, listening to the three of you. Um, I'll stop for a moment and see if any of the three of you have any parting comments. But um, this is called a think and drink. And uh, my glass is empty, so we're done thinking. So that's it. So a parting comment or two, and then Scott will come on and shut off the recording. I'm just grateful for this conversation. And Janice and Drew, um, all praise to Zoom and to Wire for putting this, uh, making it possible for this, because I can speak to you from many, many miles and have this terrific talk. I really, really am grateful. Thank you. I'm, I too, just grateful to Ken and Scott and, and you, Anne and Janice, um, for this opportunity really to expand. And so to, finding this conversation has been a highlight. So thank you. Thank you all for this. And thank you all for attending and, and chiming in um, as participants. Thank you. Great chats on, on the right. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to echo all of your gratitude, um, my gratitude. You guys are old dear friends of mine, and I could, it'd be really wonderful to continue this conversation for a long time. So it's just nice to see your faces, and I wish I could see you in person and give you both big hugs. Um, <laughs> I, I, I also am grateful for the subject, what is lost, what is found. It, it really drew some deep contemplation in me that, you know, that maybe there are things to be found. You know, maybe the well of grief doesn't have to be so deep. And, um, you know, and, and maybe, maybe what we find, the best parts of what we find may be parts of ourselves that we lost, you know, maybe a heart-based cognition rather than a mind-based cognition. Well, I'll close the formal part of this by then wrapping up with something all three of you mentioned, which is our, our gratitude, I guess we can say, to the participants. So to all of you Lair amigos and all of you out there amigos, thank you for joining us this evening. Scott will now stop the recording and we'll re- remove ourselves to the green room. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>